Welcome to the Tolstone Podcast. I'm Garrett Ryan, and my guest today is Professor Michael Carter. Dr. Carter, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Uh, Dr. Carter is professor of Greek and Roman history and Latin at Brock University, and he has written a long series of articles on the fascinating lives of the gladiators, everything from their lives to their status to the rules of a combat. And so I wanted to take a, a deep dive um, into the world of the gladiators, how they lived and how they fought, with a focus on the early imperial era. So to get started, um, just with the beginning, how did men become gladiators? That's an excellent question. Of course, there's a long history uh, of the institution all the way back to the mid-Republic and then into the well into the Christian Empire. So uh, initially, of course, they were prisoners of war, uh, slaves who were sold or captured and then made to fight often at in funerals at the tombs of, uh, of, of great Romans. Um, but by the imperial period is when the institution is uh, sort of cemented and um, become institutionalized. Mm -hmm. uh, and at this point, most of the gladiators seem to be, of course, slaves. Um, but there's a large number of uh, volunteers who, free men who volunteer to fight in the arena to join a gladiatorial school. Um, and also, of course, ex-gladiators, -glad ex uh, almost free mm -hmm. agents who return to the institution. So there's a, a mix. Um, technically, mm -hmm. I think they're all slaves. Uh, they swear an oath. They sort of sell themselves to the mm -hmm. uh, to the gladiatorial school, to the owner of the school. Um, but the mix, the origins of them are yeah, both servile and free, which is a, kind of a shocking thing when, when you first realize that uh, you've got free people volunteering to do this kind of thing. Yeah, it is astonishing. And mm -hmm. that, that infamous oath, you know, to be what, you know, burned by fire or you know, the, the blade and all of that. It's, Bound, it's pretty... beaten, burned, and killed by the sword. Right, right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty, pretty dire. Yeah, yeah. It's a very <laughs> dire sort of thing to, mm -hmm. you know, hold your hand up and agree to do. But mm -hmm. um, I think there were obviously reasons for people doing this. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, the schools, the Ludi, um, how are they organized? How much do we know about this? Actually, we know a fair bit about how they're organized, both from uh, literary references, from inscriptions, epigraphy, um, and also from archaeological evidence that's sort of emerging from all over the empire. You've probably seen some of the different reports. Mm -hmm. um, they're technically they're owned by, uh, they could be owned by the emperor. So he, we know he owned a large number of schools. There's there's, there are schools just outside, archaeologically, there are schools just mm -hmm. outside the Colosseum that we can study. Um, they would be run by a, a manager, often referred to as a lanista. And they seem to be very complex. The more we learn about them, the more complex the, uh, the, the picture emerges of what the school involves. Of course, mm -hmm. gladiators. Um, there would be also physicians. Um, Galen, famously, the famous Dr. Galen mm -hmm. worked as a physician uh, to a gladiatorial school in Pergamon. Um, there were instructors. Uh, they called them doctors. So it's confusing. They called the, the instructors are, are a doctor um, <laughs> or a magister. Um, and uh, these, the, the, the doctores, uh, the, the, the teachers, well, they seem to be actually organized by gladiatorial types. So there are retiari, sort of net men in the arena. There are mermelones, these more heavily armed gladiators, secutores, these more heavily armed gladiators. And epigraphically, the evidence seems to show that the instructors for gladiators aren't just a, just a universal instructor, but they're organized mm -hmm. by type. So there's a specialist instructor for uh, the retiari. There are specialist instructors for the secutores, for the mermelos, and, and on we go. 
Um, in addition to this, probably others, other slaves or other uh, people working in the Lunas. Uh, we know about masseurs, people that give them massages. <laughs> um, they're athletes of a sort. <laughs> right, uh, right. People to work on their armor, so armament uh, people, probably guards. Um, so it's a, it's a much more complex kind of, even though the, 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 the group is called a familia, which is a term for slaves, of course, mm-hmm. um, it's a much more complex kind of institution. And then I think, actually, probably the more senior gladiators, they have a stake in surviving, they have a stake in the ludus, the school not being out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're probably the ones who are partly, partly, I think, um, you know, maintaining order in the school. And then, and then on top of this, as I think about it, mm-hmm. not only gladiators and people associated with that, but there's also evidence for, um, uh, damnati or uh, people who have been condemned to death being part of a school or being held in a hmm. school so that when uh, a show comes up, you've got gladiators to fight, you've got probably referees you can offer um, other people to uh, to help oversee the production of the show, but then also um, uh, convicts who are in the school have been, are, are then about to uh, appear in the arena to be, to be executed and huh. they're part of the school as well. Interesting. I had no idea. So it, it's a, a full service operation, sounds like. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, and it's, I think it's part okay. of how it all was put together. If you wanted to put on a gladiatorial mm-hmm. show, if you're a priest or something, you need to put on a show. You approach, or you have a one of your agents approach uh, a lanista and um, deal with all the financing that mm-hmm. way. But he would provide everything you need. I think. Huh. Well, that's fascinating. Now, now, you mentioned uh, the types of gladiators, uh, the retiari, the secutors, the mermelones. Um, do we have a sense of what the most popular types were and whether there was kind of change over time and the most popular varieties? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, of, mm-hmm. of course, in the Republic, it's slightly different. So before mm-hmm. Augustus, before Julius Caesar, um, the main types seemed to have been the, the Galli, the Gauls, uh, Thracians, and Samnites. So ethnic kind of groups. Mm-hmm. But after Augustus, um, we have more specialized types. And you mentioned the retiari. So a retiarius is a lightweight, very agile, very quick kind of gladiator, a net man who mm-hmm. had a trident and a net. And he was very quick. He could run around. Um, and he was typically matched up against a secutor, which in Latin means a, a chaser or a pursuer, a much more heavily armed, a heavy helmet with small um, mm-hmm. eye sockets, uh, big heavy shield uh, greaves on his uh, on his legs, uh, wrapping on his sword arm, and he's much slower. He would kind of methodically plod around after the retiarius. So that's a very common matchup. We see it depicted in uh, on mosaics and reliefs, that sort of thing. The mermelo is another heavily armored type of gladiator. Uh, and there's a bunch, there's a number of them, but the most common, I think, would you'd say the mermelo as a heavily armed gladiator, the secutor is a heavily armed gladiator, and the retiarius as a lightly armed um, gladiator. Mm-hmm. And then I think for me, almost the most remarkable thing is that these types are pretty much found across the empire. So whether you're in Britain or if you're on the Euphrates, if you're in Germany or you're in uh, North Africa, you would see recognizable types of gladiators. They're, they're not, you know, regional types necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um. Hmm. And there's often, so it isn't like the, the secutor retiarius matchup, uh, this attempt to match a light and a heavy, right? You have that, that kind of dynamic in combat. Yeah, yeah, that, that appeal to the Romans in the sense that there's 
strengths and weaknesses for each of them. So the, mm -hmm. the Retiarius is well protected, um, but he can't see very well. And uh, he's fighting in the hot sun. It's, but it would be a, a slower, <laughs> right. um, a slower type of uh, attack. And the Retiarius is quick and agile. And uh, so that, that appealed to the Romans, I think. A fair fight, but with different, right. uh, different strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Now, do we have a sense of how often the average gladiator fought in the arena? That's yeah, that's a difficult one. Um, mm -hmm. The one way to get at it is to study uh, tombstones or the uh, the epitaphs of gladiators. If you put together hundreds of them, which we know these exist, mm -hmm. you end up with kind of a number. They seem to fight twenty-ish times. If we get their life expectancy. They, they die in mm -hmm. 30, but you know, it's kind of typical for the times anyway. So that's, it's a really difficult thing to say, uh, how, mm. how, uh, how long they lived. If we start from the assumption that it's a form of kind of a spectacle of homicide, that mm -hmm. gladiators are in there to kill each other, it would be remarkable if they live out as long as the evidence suggests that they do. Mm -hmm. Um, but in fact, I think the evidence we'll probably talk about in, in, a, in mm -hmm. a bit, suggests that, in fact, there are rules and regulations and other forms of uh, other forms of governance of the spectacle that mean mm -hmm. that gladiators don't always fight to the death or anything. Okay. Um, yeah, one of the many myths, right, that surrounds the men of the arena. Mm. Uh, so... You know, during the early imperial era, I know the games are the, they're at their most spectacular. We can hear about the Trajan's games and the Trajan Wars, for example, where there are mm -hmm. thousands of gladiators. Mm -hmm. And even on a provincial scale, these, you know, what seemed to us almost ludicrously extravagant spectacles. Right. So who is sponsoring these very expensive games in which gladiators are appearing? Yeah. So again, there's an evolution. And in the mm -hmm. Republic, they tended to be funerary games. Um, so the, the relatives of mm -hmm. a great man would part of the part of the funeral was to put on uh they called it a munis so a, an obligation or presentation to the people and then under augustus is when that all changes and it it really becomes especially linked to the celebration of the imperial cult now, not necessarily only but um for example in the greek world where we have lots of evidence almost all of the games and there's lots of games but they're mm -hmm. all in connection with the uh the imperial cult or the celebration of the emperor as a god. So every year there was an annual imperial cult festival. And part of these, uh, part of the celebration of the, of the festival was to put on, um, wild beast hunts and gladiators. So a, a traditional munis. So that's in the provinces. <clears throat> in Rome, of course, uh, magistrates, of course, as they always put on games in the past. And then, of course, the emperors as well. And the, mm. of course, the evidence always talks about the great fantastic games right, right. and those are the games of the emperors that we hear most about in our literary sources epigraphically mm -hmm. and uh other forms of evidence from the provinces show a slightly different picture oh sure mm -hmm. do we have a sense of how much um such games would have cost and more specifically how much it costs to uh, to rent a gladiator say you know for the day <laughs> that i mean <laughs> that's the fascinating thing is that mm -hmm. um expensive um there is a document from the reign of Marcus Aurelius, uh, late in his reign, probably dates to 176, 177. Um, we know we can date it because it's Marcus Aurelius and his son Commodus is his co-emperor, and that's a very tight window. Mm -hmm. And it's a remarkable document. It's an inscription that survives from 
Spain, um, but it's actually a version of a law that was passed by the Roman Senate under Marcus Aurelius and, and Commodus, which was meant to reduce the cost of gladiatorial. It seems that inflation was getting out of control and mm -hmm. the costs were skyrocketing. And so this is an attempt at, uh, I guess you would call it price controls to bring the prices down. And then as they did this, then um, they divided up the different types of spectacles by their size. And so we get uh, ranges from around 50,000 sesterces for a show, which is kind of small, up mm -hmm. to 200,000 and more for a, a show, which is, again, maybe a little bit more money. And then mm -hmm. inside of that, they divide up ranks, the costs for a ranked gladiator um, inside of these shows. So if your show was this much money, this is how much the gladiators are costing, this much money, this is how much it'll cost. It's very, probably mm -hmm. didn't work. Um, <laughs> it's a very... It's a very unusual document. Um, it's fascinating. It's a very unusual document, in fact, because it's it's not the law. You'd think if you're going to put it up an inscription with this, you would have the law. We don't have the law. What we have, in fact, is this, a, a, a version that's a speech by a senator hmm. reading different sections of the law. And that's what got put up in the pro – like in Spain, you know, not in <laughs> right. Rome or anything, in Spain far away. Um, it's a very unusual document, but inside of that, they give you all kinds of details about fi <clears throat> about financing, about how much it costs uh, for different gladiators and that sort of thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. very. Uh, there's lots to talk about with that document. Uh, it is fascinating thinking about how you know there's this great range in prices for gladiators. You know, for, from your Tiro up to your you know your, your tested mm -hmm. champion, and that even these things are keyed to how big the games themselves are. You know, just this uh, a sense again of how complex the world of gladiators really was. Right, right. So let's say you're a provincial elite. Uh, you're some local notable. You're throwing a games of a relatively modest scale. Mm -hmm. um, how do you go about advertising that gladiators are coming to town? <clears throat> Probably, uh, well. Again, we word of mouth would be a common one. There, mm -hmm. it's since it's at a regularly occurring festival. Mm -hmm. I think people would know the festival's coming, and what's going to happen are um, uh, gladiatorial combats would be part of this. Uh, we have some inscriptions. Most of the time, where where an upper class person will talk about the fact that he put on gladiatorial games comes in a form of a kind of a commemorative inscription. But sometimes mm -hmm. there. They're in the future tense in that these games will happen in the city of whatever on mm -hmm. such and such a date and will we'll feature um, X number of gladiators doing this, that, and the other thing. So sometimes we have that. Uh, it seems to be often word of mouth. Um, you, you, you'd know about Petronius, a mm -hmm. uh, first century Roman author um, who uh, has a dinner conversation. And at part of the dinner conversation, you have a couple of characters talking about these upcoming games. So that, that kind of word of mouth. Um, uh, uh, way of advertising or spreading the word, I think, is common. At mm -hmm. Pompeii, of course, another place where we see um, uh, different kinds of evidence, there are, if anyone's been to Pompeii, you'll have seen graffiti all over the walls, including sometimes advertisements for elections or advertisements for upcoming gladiatorial games and shows and that sort of thing. So lots of evidence from from Pompeii, that's gone from every place else, of course, but mm -hmm. uh, temporary evidence from walls and wall paintings and inscriptions, that sort of thing, graffiti. Mm -hmm. I remember the famous one about, uh, you know, there will be awnings, right? He's yeah, advertising yeah. that. You know, yeah, is this going to be hot? Is it going to so well? Right, I'm, right. I'm going to pay for the awnings to keep the, keep the sun <laughs> off of you. So uh, maybe we'll go this time. 
Right, right. <laughs> now, I'm asked sometimes on my channel whether there's anything like um, promotional merchandise for gladiators, you know, things that, if not necessarily action figures, that commemorate um, their deeds in the arena. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting again, too. And it's the kind of thing that survives um, by chance. Uh, mm -hmm. um, there are, we know, fragments or broken pieces of glass, um, small glass vases. There's several of them from France that show in relief, it was obviously mold made, um, mm -hmm. show in relief on the glass, various gladiatorial combats. And I, one assumes that these are commemorative, um, items that one could purchase mm -hmm. in, 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 to remember the show that you saw. So it's that sort of thing. Um, um, uh, vases, for example, there are vases from Britain where that happened to survive that show, um, probably specific events that happened in the arena and they're there um as a yeah. as a souvenir to to commemorate right. the show that you saw yeah it's always a little astonishing to me to see these elaborate mosaics say like there's some like in the borghese villa i think where you mm. see these you know named gladiators which mm -hmm. is apparently commemorative of a certain match Mm -hmm. And uh, this very expensive, high-status thing in the middle of some elite guy's dining room that he wanted to commemorate either a show he gave or a show that he was involved in in some way, one assumes. But uh, yeah, everything from that down to these, you know, probably cheap glass vials or, you know, terracotta lamps. Exactly, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And these mosaics survive from all over the empire. There's a lot of them from North Africa as well. Um, mm -hmm. But of course, Italy uh, from the East as well. So uh, you're right, probably maybe the person who put on the show mm -hmm then this is one of the things he's most proud of and has this expensive <laughs> mosaic made with named gladiators uh, mm -hmm. in his dining room or part of his house or something. Hmm. Very odd. So yeah, thinking about something that you've written upon, um, the rules of gladiatorial combat. You know, we often assume, or at least Hollywood tells us, it's a free-for-all, you know, blood flying in every direction mm -hmm. and uh, a melee. But there obviously are rules and pretty detailed rules. Um, how much do we know about them? For, yeah, so... It's not the kind of thing that we expect our literary sources to describe. Of course, mm -hmm. they just, they don't, Cicero tends not to talk about gladiatorial mm -hmm. combat very much other than to look down his nose at it. Um, but some of these mosaics, uh, other relief depictions show two gladiators. And traditionally we focused on the two gladiators, um, fighting, but there's always, not always, but quite often there's a third person. There's obviously a referee who's there, mm -hmm. um, uh, overseeing the combat or, or uh, uh, you know, supervising the combat. And so, so there's, there are rules. There's a referee to enforce, obviously, rules. Um, many of the mosaics seem to show one of the rules, which is that a gladiator can submit. And the way to submit is, in, in Latin, is, is called ad digitum. So you hold up the finger. Literally, you fight ad digitum, you fight to the finger. Um, and there are lots of depictions of uh, a gladiatorial combat where one gladiator has obviously been wounded and he's holding up a finger and the referee, this guy, um, will, who we know is called a summa rudis or chief stick. Sometimes there's a secunda rudis or so two referees for, mm -hmm. for a fight. Um, and he's stepping in and stopping the fight. The remarkable thing about it is that quite often the depiction shows a gladiator having been wounded, drops his shield, uh, signals surrender to the referee, holds up his finger to the referee. The referee steps in and stops the fight. But sometimes the 
gladiator submitting has even turned his back on his opponent. That is, mm-hmm. he's, he's not worried about being stabbed in the back or mm-hmm. being, uh, t- the, his opponent taking this as an opportunity to kill him by, uh, when, when he, when he's submitting. So there's a, there's an expectation that, that, um, if I submit, then, um, the referee will step in and stop the fight and that will be, you know, send both gladiators to their corners and, and mm-hmm. not come out, uh, until, until the referee decides. But it's actually not the referee who decides. He stops the fight, and then we have obviously depictions of uh, a referee stopping the fight and then turning and looking kind of off mosaic or off stage, mm-hmm. but probably referring to uh, and make giving the gesture over to the person who paid for the show. So if you paid, if you're providing a show, these two guys have fought. One guy has submitted. He's got a wound. He's submitting. Mm-hmm. Um, the referee stops the fight. He turns to you to say, is this okay? And that's where you might turn to the crowd and give mm-hmm. them the choice. Um, another way to submit seems to be to, uh, instead of raising your finger, is to drop to a knee. So you, you go fall to the ground or you drop to maybe throw your shield away or drop your shield and put your um, knee on the ground. And that's a way to submit. There are, again, relief. Uh, there's a famous relief from... Uh, a tomb outside of Pompeii, which shows a gladiator right in the center on his knee, holding up his hand to his opponent, is submitting <clears throat> to his opponent. So hmm. one way it's one of the rules then seems to be that a gladiator can submit. Um, it's not necessarily the end of the fight because they might be forced back in together. One way to submit is to hold up a finger. Another way to submit might be to drop to a knee. So if you're a gladiator, one of the, one of the things you might want to do is to try and force your opponent onto the ground. Uh, and there is, there are, again, there are depictions of, uh, gladiatorial combat where a retiarius with a, a trident has hooked his trident onto the shield of a secretor and is trying to force him. It's clear he's pushing him huh. down to the ground and the referee is stepping in and is about to stop the fight. So if you can get your opponent onto the ground, um, that might be a sign that he then would submit and you might, you know, that, that might end the fight there. Um, and we know that this is a rule and we know it's a rule because, uh, the historian, the biographer Suetonius describes the emperor Claudius and describes how cruel Claudius was, whether he was or not, but how, this is how cruel Claudius was that he had gladiators killed, even those who fell accidentally. That is to say, there's probably a rule that if you fall accidentally, well, then this, the referee would normally let you back up, right? If you trip and you fall, that's not a submission. It's just I like, tripped over mm-hmm. this arm in the sand or something, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So you, and so the referee can step in, stop the fight, um, and let you back up, right? So that's, uh, uh, that's one of the rules, it seems. They're hard to reconstruct, though. You you mm-hmm. need to pull evidence from a variety of places to uh, to put this together. Oh, I'm sure. You wrote an article, I seem to recall, about a gladiator, gladiator who blamed his death on a bad call from the ref. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that was one of these uh, calls. So the depiction, it's a, it's a beautiful tombstone. So obviously, he had money. Um, it depicts two gladiators, one gladiator's on the ground, holding his, his helmets off. He's holding his hand up, submitting. Um, he's dropped his shield. He's totally defenseless. And the other gladiator is standing over him with two swords in his hand, clearly mm-hmm. victorious. There's a palm branch shown behind him. Clearly, he's victorious. 
Underneath the relief is then this long inscription, and the inscription describes two gladiators, uh, Diodorus and Demetrius, um, and the dead guy, Diodorus, is, it, it, you would assume he was the defeated gladiator, but he can't be, you wouldn't put that on your tombstone, so it's obviously he's the, um, uh, the, the shown the champion up above. Mm -hmm. And in the text of the inscription, it just, it blames the referee for his death. Clearly, I think what's happened is it's always was interpreted that he was a gladiator with two swords, like a Dimacharis, a mm -hmm. rare type of gladiator. Um, but I think that can't be. I think what's happened is uh, his opponent fell to the ground. Demetrius Diodorus uh, picked up the other sword, stood victorious over him, didn't kill him, right? His opponent surrendered. He didn't kill him. He expected to have won the uh, won the match. Maybe he pushed him down. Maybe he forced him to the ground. He thought that he had won the match. Clearly, then, what happened is the referee stepped in, stopped the fight. He clearly gave the sword back to um, his opponent, Demetrius. And then at the end of the fight, Diodorus died deliberately. We don't know. So he dies out of this fight. Um, but initially, he thought he'd won. And then his tombstone then depicts the moment that he thought he'd won the fight. His family thought he'd won the fight. Everyone thought mm -hmm. he'd won the fight. But the referee uh, interpreted that rule about falling or tripping or being on the ground um, to be that it was an accidental fall, I think. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, both of that reveals, of course, about combat and that mm -hmm. the point that it was commemorated, that, you know, that the phone gladiator's comrades or family chose to give this long account and that it would be appreciated or sympathized mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. There's... Um, the, the gladiatorial families probably trained together, as we saw as we studied the Ludus. They trained together. Many of these guys may have known each other. It would have been potentially a, a, a really horrifying situation to, to fight someone whom you knew. Maybe it was a friend, a mm -hmm. comrade. And another curious thing that, that I've kind of made an argument for is the existence of what I've kind of termed a code or a code of conduct mm -hmm. that's drawn from kind of modern sports. Um, you hear about people who, you know, the, the code in hockey or the code in football, mm -hmm. or uh, they play the game the right way. It's this nebulous kind of idea of the code, but some gladiatorial tombstones make a boast about the fact that uh, a certain gladiator died having hurt no one or mm -hmm. that he had saved many souls in the arena, which is an odd thing, very odd thing for a gladiator, I think, to... Um, to boast about. I think what it suggests is this kind of idea that um, these are comrades, they're, they're fighting, uh, not necessarily to kill one another, um, but they're fighting to, to win the combat, with, maybe without killing someone. So if you can do that without killing someone, so much the better. You might know mm -hmm. these people, or you might not be, I think probably have a certain sympathy for their plight, because it's your plight as well. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, and it makes sense. Like you said, they're training together, especially. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's Marshall has one of his epigrams, um, uh, praise for gladiator who was, um, you know, did, didn't kill people. You know, he was very, very good at what he did, but he was you know, a merciful gladiator and was admired yeah. as such. Yes, yeah, and he's uh, um, exactly he he could win without killing. I think is mm -hmm. one of the lines that uh, right, right. that Marshall describes him as. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, hmm. Commodus. Uh, became enraged again a, a story from a uh, dial from an elite source mm -hmm. uh, but Commodus supposedly became enraged at gladiators when they uh, were hesitant to kill their opponent so obviously he 
meant for the gladiators to fight to the death. Mm -hmm. Probably an, an unusual show, but he's the emperor. Um, and when gladiators <laughs> hesitated to do that, he was upset. So that tells me that um, it's meant to show the cruelty of Commodus, but what it tells mm -hmm. me is that gladiators were not prepared to kill their opponent um, necessarily, or they didn't want to kill their opponent. Right. Mm -hmm. Huh. Yeah, again, very different from the Hollywood depiction. Mm. Um, so thinking about parallels with modern sports, um, and more especially with uh, pro wrestling, which might seem oh. like kind of a strange <laughs> yeah. comparison, but yep. uh, w were matches that we know of ever fixed in the arena? Or were there accusations of such anyway? Yeah, so a, a few things. I, 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 there's not very much evidence direct for that kind of thing, but I, I, I've hunted one up. I'm just gonna, I'll read it to you in a second here. Oh, sure. Um, mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes, uh, gladiatorial combat, I mean, I mentioned Commodus making gladiators fight to the death. Oftentimes, it seems that fights to the death were the exception, not the norm. Um, Again, inscriptions talk about how uh, a certain priest of the imperial cult is putting on gladiatorial games. And part of the games that he's going to put on, he'll have uh, two gladiatorial pairs who are fighting for their lives, it'll say, in addition to the normal, <laughs> in addition to the normal gladiatorial pairs, mm -hmm. which suggests, and, and oh, sorry, and it, when he says this, he says it that he's also got permission of the emperor, imperial indulgentia, in order to put on these kinds of shows, which suggests to me that the normal type of fighting is not to the death. Um, but if you wanted to put on gladiatorial combat to the death, then you need to have permission from the emperor. Mm -hmm. And this is in part, I think, because the great cost involved more than anything. Um, we know Augustus Band fights called Cine Missione without release. Mm -hmm. he, he banned that, made that illegal. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It's just that you needed permission then to do it. Other evidence suggests that even you needed permission to have gladiators fight with sharp weapons, which suggests, which is a very, mm -hmm. uh, very odd kind of thing. But it suggests that what's important is more the sword play and the technique that, uh, that's expected rather than, um, rather than the, the gladiators killing each other. Mm -hmm. So um, there is a, a piece of evidence that suggests, so gladiators would not necessarily kill each other. There is a piece of evidence that where uh, Augustine, St. Augustine describes mm -hmm. um, crowds urging on gladiators. And they, if they get wind of the fact that think that the, the, the gladiators are in cahoots or colluding, then they're very mm -hmm. upset. It's, this is this is just what it says in their. This is Augustine talking to his mm -hmm. congregation, so he gets a little frothy. Oh, in right. their furious <laughs> zeal for spectacles, these men become like demons. This is the people in the audience by their shouting, their clamores. They incite men to slaughter each other and hurl themselves into enraged fights. Even men who have done them no harm, these men, the gladiators do this as long as they wish to please the demented people. And if they, the people, if they, they notice that the fighters are in agreement, they hate them and they harass them as if they are colluding to fake the fight. And the crowd cries out that they should be beaten with clubs. They even compel the referee, the Udex, uh, uh, Augustine says, who is mm -hmm. supposed to correct unfairness to side with their unfair view. And on he goes, he gets very frothy at the mouth after <laughs> that. But there's, a, there's huh, some suggestion yeah. that maybe... Um, that people could interpret gladiators not hurting each other as somehow colluding in uh, this kind of fight, the exact same kind of thing that we hear about with uh, modern wrestling. There are other evidence. There's other pieces of evidence for, uh, you know, which might suggest this kind of thing too. Oh, well, that, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I'd forgotten all about that passage actually. Yeah. Um, 
And, and the, the one I, I think about, um, I think it's Domitian. Uh, someone near the imperial box in the Colosseum shouts that it's fixed, so the emperor's gladiators never use, never, never lose. Domitian, ha- Domitian has the guy, you know, thrown into a wild dogs in the arena with a sign yes. around his neck, you know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, don't criticize the emperor, even if it is true. But, that's uh, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so thinking about you know, the experience of a fight, so there's the two men in the arena, there's one, maybe two arrest referees um, who are watching and supervising the fight, and then there are thousands or even tens of thousands of spectators, mm-hmm. um, and among them, of course, the man who's giving the games. Mm-hmm. So think about this experience. How much do we know about the shouts and the gestures of the spectators um, while men are fighting? Yeah, that's where I've, I've mm-hmm. kind of inspired by the COVID experience. Um, I've really got to thinking about the arena, we always talk about the audience, mm-hmm. but really we only talk about them as spectators. Because we don't think about them uh, hearing anything or what they hear, what they say, what you would hear in the arena. So um, there is evidence, of course, for the, sh- not not as much as you maybe think, but there's evidence for the shouting, um, the impact of the shouting of the crowd in the arena. Um, and most famously, again, it was Augustine, uh, mm-hmm. where he describes how a friend of his went to oh, right. Right, right. He refused. He was a, a Christian. He refused to go to the arena. He was in Rome studying law and all his colleagues, fellow students, cajoling him. Come on, let's go to the game. Let's go to the games. Let's go to the games. And finally he said, you know, peer pressure is pretty powerful. Uh, okay, <laughs> finally, I'll go, I'll go, but I'll cover my eyes and I won't watch anything. And you can't, mm-hmm. I'll be with you, but I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to watch the spectacle. And then Augustine goes on to describe how uh, he has his eyes shut. He's not wa- He's not watching. He's not paying attention. But the roar of the crowd at a certain moment in the fight, comp- Augustine actually says, hammered him, like slammed into him and mm-hmm. compelled, entered his soul, Augustine talks about, through his ears and compelled him to open his eyes. And he opens his eyes and then gets, you know, drinks in the sight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very almost cannibalistic, this the way Augustine describes it, drinks it in, sees the sight and becomes um, one with the crowd. So the crowd noise, and obviously it's a fluctuating kind of thing. So he's able to shut it out most of the time until some really exciting event draws a, a super loud roar from the crowd and he can't, he can't stand it anymore. Um, so I was inspired to think, I was thinking about this during COVID when sport, hockey, baseball, football, soccer came back online or on television, but in empty stadia, Mm -hmm. which is, it was very dissatisfying to watch a baseball game um, with no crowd noise. And so networks started pumping in crowd noise, made up crowd Mm -hmm. noise in order to to fill this. Obviously we need to, to, to share this, um, this experience with other people because otherwise it's, it's not. And that's what I, I, you know, that's what crowd noise does. So there's crowd, there's cheering, there's evidence for acclamations. Quite often these acclamations are rhythmical, um, which would suggest that if it's rhythmical, you would chant it. Uh, you might sway as you're chanting it. So kind of dancing in, uh, in unison and harmony with other people. These are, these are powerful psychological cues. A crowd noise is a powerful psychological cue that this is something important to a community, that this is something important that I need to, I need to be a part of. Um, and that's, I think, what Olympias, Augustine's friend, mm-hmm. gets caught up in this. He wants to be part of this community. And it's all through sound, not the spectacle initially at all. It's the sound of the arena. So crowd sounds, uh, 
acclamations, chants of the crowd, often, again, I think rhythmical chants of the crowd. There's music down in the arena mm -hmm. that would, music inspires, again, dancing, but, or, or swaying movement. Um, and that's all an important part of being part of a community. It's, mm -hmm. that's, it, it's community forming to have uh, these sorts of sounds where silence is not. Right. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I went to the University of Michigan for grad mm. school and you know, there's the big house, which has you know, more than 110,000 mm. people that can cram into there. And uh, it really is uh, a physical experience, you yeah, know, visceral, yeah. the, the sheer volume <clears throat> of, so of sound you know, pounding you from every side. And it, yeah, it's very yeah. exciting. Yeah. Yeah, um, we're Seattle, don't they register mm -hmm. on the Richter scale? Uh, oh, yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> you know. But it, you can see where Augustine's mm -hmm. come from, where the sound hammers him is what he says. It just, mm -hmm. it's a physical uh, sort of thing that, that hit him. You know, and, and thinking about uh, the arena music, I remember, I think it's mm. the, the Zlitten mosaic where they yeah. have like a, a lady in a beehive hairdo playing the organ, you know, <laughs> in the arena. And then there's the, the gladiators fighting beside it. Yeah. Um, do we know much much besides uh, that there were organs by the instruments that were played or the kind of music they would have heard? Yeah. So there's lots of evidence for the the, the organ, the hydraulis, uh, the mm -hmm. organ. It's hard to imagine that it would be loud enough, but obviously right. it was, uh, um, mm -hmm. that it could be loud enough. Also, uh, the tubas, these long, oh, right. um, uh, military implements, you see them on Trajan's column and the cornu, that the mm -hmm. circular, again, uh, a military instrument. You see it on Trajan's column. Um, a, a tuba has been reconstructed in, uh, one, uh, an archaeological discovery in, uh, of a tuba in France reconstructed and then and played and mm -hmm. it's a very discordant sort of sound um it's hard to imagine i mean we can listen to it we can know what what it sounds like if we can reconstruct it we know what it would sound like uh i think they're used in the military because they could be heard from so far away they were so loud mm -hmm. um so we can say what it might sound like to us today uh, it's hard to say what it would sound like to a roman at the time though we have again some descriptions of what the effect of what this tuba sounds like. And it's not, it's, it's sometimes some of the de descriptions of the effect of the sound of the tuba from uh, Roman literary sources is that it inspires terror mm -hmm. so, because it's a military instrument. And so that, if that maybe changes how we ought to think about what the music sounds like in the arena, maybe it was serious um, uh, and, and, and more, not, not terrifying, but almost terrifying um, mm -hmm. sounding music rather than, you know, the dun, 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 dun <laughs> yeah, that right. we hear from, from hockey games and that sort of thing today. Sure, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not, not, the, not the team song or anything. It's more... Yes, yes, yeah. I guess kind of reminding people that this is, you know, mortal combat, that this mm -hmm. is serious stuff. It, it's certainly dangerous, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. certainly, certainly very dangerous. Hmm. So thinking about the gestures of the crowd, and in particular, the infamous uh, Palake Verso, the thumb... Um, so, so what's your take on the thumbs up, thumbs down debate? Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a big debate. It is a debate mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that I think we can back up a little bit where it comes from. Mm -hmm. I think it's that moment where the referee stops the fight, turns to the munerarius, the editor, the person paying for the show, putting on the show. Um, your show. What do you think? Did they fight on, uh, or are you willing to accept the uh, the surrender of this gladiator? Traditionally, we think that that's where the the uh, the Munerarius, the the editor, would then turn the the decision over to the people, right? Mm -hmm. And he often, if we have some descriptions of what he he calls them, domini, 
my lords, turning to the people to mm. say that, and gives the description, the decision to them. It's, I think, our assumption that the people are all kill them, kill them, kill them. Um, where I think, in fact, some of the evidence shows quite the opposite that they want their champions, um, to live. But that's probably where the thumbs up, thumbs down gesture comes from. I tend to f fall on the side that it's a, it's not, it's not a thumb up necessarily, but more mm -hmm. of a, a stabbing gesture. Ah. Um, that this is a, you kill them, um, mm -hmm. this way, not, you know, the kind of right, fondy, right fondy sort of thing, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it, I mean, there's a long history of the gesture. It's in the 20th century. I think it came out of the first world war mm -hmm. i think the, the thumb gesture oh right our current okay. idea of yeah the current idea it's more like pointing towards the throat say or something or yes know, like yeah a, so it, to mm -hmm. kill them or stab them in the throat something like that i got it yeah where a closed fist might be you know no sword so a save i see perhaps hmm. interesting but it's the people um, the people as juvenile says right, right the people with the turn of their thumb uh, mm -hmm. can kill a gladiator hmm. so and we, we touched on this before briefly but um how often, roughly, do we think these matches ended in death of one of the combatants? Less than I think we think, although it was dangerous. Um, of so mm -hmm. it's it's very hard to uh, come up with these numbers. Galen, who was the physician to a gladiatorial family in Pergamon, boasts that while he worked there, at least, <laughs> nobody died. Um, that could mean that nobody who was able to be saved died. Mm -hmm. um, but my my take is that there's lots of blood, there's lots of death, there's lots of uh, uh, homicide going on, lots of uh, killing going on in the arena. Part of these shows are linked up with wild beast hunts, and there's lots of animals being killed. You mentioned Trajan, right? Eleven thousand animals mm -hmm. in this. It's you know it's mind numbing. The number you can do the math. It's almost a hundred animals a day mm -hmm. for months. It's it's a, a an astronomical astronomical number. Um, Gladiators are proper gladiators, I think, are expensive professionals. To kill them, we talked about how you rented a gladiator, to kill them, the cost goes through the roof. Um, there's a, uh, a, a law, sorry, a, a, a passage in, a, in the digest in, um, uh, in Gaius's Institutes, who's a, a lawyer, seems to be sort of a first-year law textbook. You probably know mm -hmm. what this thing. Dating to the same time as Marcus Aurelius, so later second century. And at one point, he's talking about contract law. Not gladiators, nothing like that. He's talking about contract law and the difference between hiring and uh, so leasing something and purchasing something. And so you, it's there are similarities in the contract, right? I give you money, you give me a a car or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there are similarities. Um, and the example he uses to describe it is curious. He says, imagine that uh, I lease a gladiator from you for 20 denarii a fight. But if that gladiator is killed or maimed, then the cost goes to a thousand denarii. And those prices are in line with the prices, in fact, that roughly that Marcus mm -hmm. Aurelius's legislation trying to reduce the cost. So it's roughly the same kind of thing, um, but it's 50 times more expensive wow. if a gladiator is maimed or killed. It's basically, it's you break them, you buy them. Right? <laughs> right. So um, <laughs> if I lease my gladiator to you mm -hmm. and you kill him or you have his arm damaged or something like that, you, you have to pay his full price. But if it's just a lease, it's a much more reasonable kind of price. So 
killing gladiators. That's why you're turning this, this gesture, turning it over to the crowd. Uh, you, you know, I think you need imp- imperial permission to do that kind of thing, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, again, because the emperors are worried about local fortunes the, of the local elite being, mm-hmm. you know, drained on this kind of, you know, these kinds of shows. They don't mm-hmm. want uh, people bankrupting themselves, as we hear about people doing, putting on shows. Um, so the number of people dying is, again, it's really hard of to course. tell, but there are rules. And there are financial impediments in the way of killing proper gladiators. But as, as we talked about at the beginning, uh, in the gladiatorial family, we're also convicts. And so one of the things mm-hmm. you'd have in a munis that you put on, you'd have wild animal hunts in the morning, we think, gladiators in the afternoon. And at noon, we think often there are executions. And so if you come to the arena to see bloodshed, Seneca describes this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If you come there, to see, you'll see it. Um, but it's not necessarily proper gladiators. It's instead um, people who have been condemned to death, legally condemned to death and mm-hmm. thrown into the arena. Right. Whether it's, you know, ad bestias, mm-hmm. whatever else, you know, these mm-hmm. Nazi, mm-hmm. They're, they're going to die. You know, they're not mm-hmm. going to escape the arena where a gladiator yes. might conceivably. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I've seen, I think there was some count done through uh, tombstones. Um, I think it was in North Africa or something where there was an estimate that it was like a, a one in five chance of a match ending in death in the first century, and then yeah. something like one in four later on. This is just a guesstimate on best in one region, from what I understand. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. But it's so it's a lot lower than we tend to of course. think. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, now, do we have a sense that the, the game that the matches became bloodier with time, or less so with time? Was there any change globally from our sense? Or one thing we might we we would tend traditionally to assume that with the Christian mm-hmm. Empire, things right. became but doesn't seem to be the mm-hmm. case. In fact, many of Constantine, uh, the first Christian emperor, many of his laws are pretty, uh, pretty yeah. he doesn't ban gladiatorial combat and many of the laws are still pretty uh, pretty bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So for the people who do manage to survive, um, so what kind of prizes could a victorious gladiator expect to receive? So I think money is one. That, again, mm-hmm. that law from Marcus Aurelius, it's, goes into all kinds of detail. One of the details is he's talking about trying to lower the cost and all these myriad ways he's trying to lower the cost. Um, one of the things that is mentioned is that a free man who's a gladiator receives 25% prize money and a slave a slave receives mm-hmm. 20%. So we're not exactly sure what monies this is. Is it his lease costs or his mm-hmm. overall, per- you know, where this, but he's receiving money. They don't talk about that. So no gladiator on his tombstone says how much money he made mm-hmm. in each fight. But the fact that he has a tombstone, his wife, right. uh, his family, his comrades put up a tombstone, they paid to have it inscribed. They paid to have sometimes in verse, mm-hmm. uh, they paid to have uh, a, a nice relief carved on it, showing him in all his glory. That costs money. Um, so that's one of the prizes more ostentatiously or more publicly the prize would be a a, a palm branch mm-hmm. and we hear about a gladiator when he's victorious he can pick up a palm branch and run a caligula does it in the arena <laughs> run around with a palm branch uh, a crown sometimes like an athlete um uh, uh, an olive crown mm-hmm. um, the same kind of prize like that so there are monetary prizes and then which are more under the table but then the um uh uh the the public prizes the, the right. kind of honorific prizes that they want to boast about having and then if uh you could also receive um 
the rudis, a wooden sword, oh, right. which is a symbol of uh, being freed from the arena. So you're released from your oath. And um, then I guess you can become a free agent, rejoin mm -hmm. afterwards. Huh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. One wonders how much it's worked out in advance of this these gifts, you know, whether the the, the Munerarius is saying to the you know, the Lanista, all right, so we'll I'll give you two guys, you give me, you know, twenty ten Aurei, we'll figure this all out. And, right, right. And this mm -hmm. and this person will then uh will be freed and that he, you know, great popularity for the right, person right. putting on the show to free this famous gladiator and his days uh, as right, a gladiator right. and let him go free. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm merciful. You're rich. Everyone's happy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know the crowd cheering. They're that's what they want. Right. right? These right. acclamations. They mm -hmm. you can imagine in uh, an amphitheater with twenty thousand or more people all chanting your name and mm -hmm. clapping. And again, these kind of rhythmical chants. I think um, pretty special moment in your life. I think. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, I, I wondered when I was writing these questions up. You know, so if these men are receiving money, whether slave or free, even mm -hmm. the ones who lose and get money sometimes. Um, who's managing this money? Do we have any ideas? Like the in the school, is there a bank of some sort? That's that just, an, yeah, it's yeah. an excellent. It's an, <laughs> that's the kind of thing we we don't probably. Uh, of course, probably, yeah. it's it's tempting to imagine that um, the ludus helps you manage this money. Mm -hmm. Many of these guys, the gladiators, their tombstones are put up by a wife. They have a wife. Mm -hmm. They have a family. So their money's, I would assume, being managed in the same way everyone else's. Yeah. money is being is being managed um the, the the financial side of it the money side of it is a fascinating uh kind of because i mean if if i'm a lenista and you're a priest of the imperial cult in ephesus mm -hmm. or some great city and you're hiring my gladiators but you're only paying the least cost which is much lower um if you kill them all, how what what recourse do I have? I have no. I can't mm -hmm. sue you. Yeah, That's right. Not so probably a lot of these, and and to begin with, you as an imperial cult priest are not going to come and talk to me as a linista. Oh no, of course. So there there would there's probably um, agents and middlemen mm -hmm. and probably bankers. So you would put on deposit with a banker mm. a certain amount of money that would either be released back to you by the banker or claimed by me as the Lenista at the end of it all. And it could be that part of the reason for the collapse of the institution in the later times was the collapse in the banking system. Maybe mm -hmm. they, you just couldn't do this, the, the, these, mm -hmm. tra these transactions just couldn't happen as easily um, as they had before. Yeah, well, hopefully some papyrus from Egypt will come to light. They'll shed more, <laughs> make this all yeah. clear to us. But it, yeah. it's fascinating, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the the negotiations. Mm -hmm. So back back to the gladiators and their actual fights in the arena. You mentioned before that there's a ranking system among gladiators. Um, how did this work? As far as we know, <laughs> as as far as we know. So right, mm -hmm. the the that law again presumes that you're going to pay more money for a better gladiator. So there has to be a recognizable system in place that would that you would be able to tell that this is a better gladiator than this one. This one's more expensive. This one has more experience, and so therefore is worth more money. It could be that you know the gladiators, but at some point that becomes unlikely. Mm -hmm. Inscriptions, and not every gladiatorial tombstone, but inscriptions, especially from the Greek world, but there's some in the Roman West as well. Uh, most of them that mention this kind of a ranking system will mention something called a primus palace, literally a first post, kind of a funny thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
the palace is a post and we know that uh, Roman soldiers, but also gladiators would in the ludus would train against so their sword work. They train against a post as you practice mm-hmm. striking and hitting, with, defending with your shield and hitting, stabbing at a post. Um, you're not going to hurt anyone that way, and you can practice your swordsmanship. So a, a post, but there's also references to a, a second palace and a third palace, which sounds like. I mean, if I were, I would like to be part of the first palace, not the second palace or the third. Mm -hmm. It's a hierarchical society. So that looks like it might be uh, a reference to a ranking system. There's, I think, even one reference to a fourth palace. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, to me, that my suspicion is that that's uh, a reference to this ranking system. Where we do have references to it, most of them are to the Primus Palace. Mm-hmm. Of course, you're not going to say you're from the fourth palace. Until, <laughs> yeah, right. You're just not going to say that on your tombstone. <laughs> um, but there are a few references to that. It could also be organizational, but to mm-hmm. me, uh, we need a ranking system that's recognizable. Um, and that's the only ranking system that really kind of exists hmm. or suggests they, that it's a ranking system. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and so based, we assume, on record and experience. Uh, Record mm-hmm. experience, yeah. So a T-Row, as you, you mentioned, but first a recruit, mm-hmm. again, it's the, it's the Roman military term for a recruit, but it's, he starts at the bottom and then you work your way up. I think within a, a specific armament type, the we talked about at the beginning, the doctores, the mm-hmm. instructors are specific to type and the T-Row is specific to type and you rise up through the ranks uh, fighting with and training with the um, the gladiators of the same type. So all the Mermelos trained together, all the Secretaries trained together, that sort of thing, and then rising through the ranks that way. Hmm. Do we know the names of the superstars, you know, the most famous gladiators of a given era? Yeah, they appear sometimes in uh, in literary references. Yeah, so think again, like Petronius in the first century, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in Nero's court, scribing Petrides, you know, these famous gladiators. Mm-hmm. So sometimes um, in in that's where they show up in literary references. Um, Juvenal will talk about a famous gladiator. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. How much evidence do we have for female gladiators? Oh, well, that's, <laughs> that's a that's a so there is evidence for them, um, not nearly as much as for uh, regular male gladiators. But there are relief panels. There's a famous one from Halicarnassus mm-hmm. now in the British Museum, showing Amazon and Achillea, these two female mm-hmm. gladiators, clearly um, fighting. They, the same rules seem to apply to them. Um, it's they're, they're they're referred to in Greek as having been relief released from their fight. So the same rules applying. There are uh, literary descriptions. Domitian, for example, we know put on um, female gladiators. There are there's epigraphic evidence for it. There's an inscription from Ostia talking about uh, a priest or a, a magistrate putting on gladiators. He says he's the first to put on female gladiators. So there is evidence for it. Um, it's not, they're not nearly as, it's not even a word for a female gladiator. Um, mm-hmm. They're not nearly as uh, ubiquitous as um, Roman male gladiators. Of course. But they, they do exist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is curious. Right. I think it's a, it's a fascinating um, sort of side to it. People make right. huge arguments about gladiators and Roman male military exactly. virtue and that sort of thing. And then to have, fem- and, and again, they're, they're common enough. Mm-hmm. That and and everywhere in the empire, um, that maybe people would have seen this. So, um, yeah, um, so they do exist. Right. A curious thing, 
some of the great evidence for what goes on in the arena is from martyr Christian martyr acts. Mm-hmm. And one of them is the martyr Perpetua from North Africa, who has a mm-hmm. series of dreams. You know about her, has a series of dreams as she's waiting execution. Um, and one of the dreams is that she appears in the arena to fight sort of a gladiator. It's all mixed up. It's kind of a pseudo gladiatorial right. combat mixed up with maybe pancratium and, and, you know, boxing and this sort of thing. Um, but in the dream, in order for her to fight, she turns into a man. So in her dream, she's a man before she can fight in the arena. So it's common for women to fight in the arena, or it happens that women fight in the arena, maybe not all that common that she could stay as a woman and continue mm-hmm. to fight. It, it is fascinating. Like, like you yeah. said, it's so bound up, or it seems to be so bound up, and you know, the idea of the warrior in this very masculine mm-hmm. sense. And so maybe mm-hmm. the thrill was the subversion of gender roles you know, yeah. in, the, yeah. in the space of the arena. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So you mentioned before that a gladiator who had fought well could be awarded the Rudus, this wooden sword that symbolized his release from his mm-hmm. contract. Um, do we know how else gladiators could be, you know, liberated from their their contracts, maybe end their careers, and um, maybe it's how often this happened? I, Again, love to know. That, you know uh, of course, right? Yes, actual that, statistics on this sort of right, thing. right? Yeah, yeah that my, makes my, sense. my my is mm-hmm. my. I, they're they're not dying as. They're not being killed in the arena as often as we traditionally wanted to think they were, I think, although it's mm-hmm. still dangerous, right? These weapons, if you get a cut um, uh, that's infected, you know, you could die mm-hmm. later on, that, that sort of thing. There are depictions of gladiators being executed, um, but there's lots of references to them, again, receiving the rudas. I suspect that um, a slave gladiator could build up his uh, winnings mm-hmm. if he's successful over and over again. Um, and uh, purchase his own sli- his own freedom as as we know slaves uh, could mm-hmm. do as well. Um, to receive the rudas, I think, was a kind of a mark of a a, a great gladiator who had kind of reached kind of that his the apex of his career, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit beyond it. Mm-hmm. My suspicion is that these guys could either they could either return to the arena as kind of free agents, or I my suspicion is that they could then become referees in the arena, right? They're mm. called a sumerudus, a secundarudus. There's right. a hierarchy already set up there. So a retired gladiator who's a rudarius, uh, a rudus man, mm-hmm. maybe enters back into the ludus uh, or to the into the service as an owner, as a trainer, perhaps. Mm-hmm. He's a specialist. He survived. But he could also then become a referee in the arena, secundarudus, and then maybe a sumerudus at the top who had, we know, some considerable social standing in communities. Hmm. So often, even if they're released from their contract, they're remaining in the community of the arena. They're mm-hmm. part of this world mm-hmm. still, mm-hmm. Um, which makes sense, right? Because mm-hmm. there's such low status everywhere outside the arena, but within yeah. it. They yeah, and this... sometimes with with considerable money that they'd won. Right. Um, there's a reference to, I think it's in the digest, to a community in the Greek world who had sent an ambassador to the emperor mm-hmm. and the emperor dismissed this embassy because he found out that one of the ambassadors sent to him had been a former gladiator. So really? oh, on the one hand, it says, mm-hmm. well, you know, the emperor does, it's, you know, this person has infamia, he's disgraced, we don't want anything mm-hmm. to do. On the other hand, it says that that community thought, hey, here's the most right. important guy in town uh, mm-hmm. that we can send to the emperor himself on an embassy. And so, um, huh. yeah, so uh, uh, so it, it tells, it, you know, the same piece of evidence tells two different stories. Right. Mm-hmm. Huh. 
So thinking uh, globally as we, we wrap up here, you mentioned before that there's a remarkable degree of standardization across regions mm. in, terms, in terms of combat. Um, do we think that the games seem to have the same trajectory throughout the empire? That there's, you mentioned before, the collapse of the banking system in the third century seems to really deal a serious mm-hmm. blow to the games. Mm-hmm. Um, a sense of how the games evolve across the imperial era um, from, say, the age of Augustus into late antiquity. You know, what's changing? They're becoming less spectacular because there's less money around. They're becoming bloodier, different kinds of spectacles. Yeah, I think we always have to, con- to remember too that there it's not just gladiators, right? But there are the beast fights that tends mm-hmm. to be kind of a tripartite, tripartite show with with mm-hmm. beast fights and executions and gladiators as well. And what tends to die out in the uh, in the later period, sort of well into the Christian period, are, is the gladiatorial side of things. And mm-hmm. it's not necessarily because it was seen, I think, as extra cruel, although some Christian sources say that. I think it's partly the financing and the cost mm-hmm. of the whole thing. But the other parts of the Muna survive, right? The ex- right. There's still executions going on, um, and there are still wild beast hunts, wild beast fights um, mm-hmm. that are a, a key part of this as well. So that and it, it, it's a gradual disappearance um, well into the, I think, well into the fourth century. I mean, Augustine's mm-hmm. right, uh, right. His friend there around the year 400 or so in Rome, and there's still a huge cheer, uh, cheering crowd mm-hmm. um, in the Colosseum, right? 50,000 people cheering a, a gladiatorial show. Hmm. Yeah, you know, there's that. I think it's it's a myth of, of uh, I think Saint Telemachus you know, in Rome who leaps into the arena, you know, to stop uh, combat and then is stoned for his troubles by yep. the crowd. <laughs> yes. um, but but I, but I think you're right about it being financial, basically, because even the beast hunts, which does do continue, yep. become more and more anemic. You know that they have yep. you know a couple bears from Germany and not much else. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, make yeah. they some may acrobats. have hunted them all out though, right? Right, so right. They yeah. may have driven animals to extinction, uh, hmm. as I think they did in North Africa. Right, um, right, right. The lions and and, and with complete praise of the people. Of course, this right. This is yeah. a good thing. Enemy and nature mm-hmm. is the enemy for uh, very different from our point of view, but nature is the enemy. And if the Roman emperor can kill all the lions, mm-hmm. that's great. Right, right. And no mm-hmm. environmentalist in that era. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to kind of close out with uh, the fascination of the gladiators, you know, so on the one hand, they are reviled. You know, the guy sent as an ambassador is rejected mm-hmm. out of hand because he was a because, former gladiator. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, they are revered, adulated. Within their little sphere, at least, they're a big deal. And the emperors themselves seemed, some of them anyway, I think it worthwhile to emulate gladiators, Commodus most yeah. famously mm-hmm. becoming a gladiator, yeah. in effect. But other emperors sponsoring the games, appearing in the Colosseum. So have you any thoughts on this dynamic of how these men are simultaneously, you know, thought of the lowliest of the low, murderers and butchers, and yet isn't somehow embodying something that the Romans admire? Just mm-hmm. your thoughts on this dynamic. This, yeah, it's a curious thing, and it is commented. Tertullian, a Christian source, of course, mm-hmm. comments on that exact uh, that exact point. That on the one hand, they they're despised officially, legally, formally mm-hmm. despised, but on the other hand, they're adored by the people. Um, I, I, it's it's a curious kind of thing. Uh, traditionally, people have thought that what this it represents apart from the person who's doing it, but it represents the ultimate in sort of Roman traditional values of 
military virtue, military discipline, um, extreme martial skill. So these kind mm -hmm. of core Roman values. Uh, and then this is a pure celebration of it. That might explain why it became so popular at the funerals in the Republic in the early days, right? This is mm -hmm. a way to you know, celebrate. This is what we're all about, these kind of um, martial uh, values. And then in the imperial period, it, it spreads, especially outside of Italy, all over the empire, in connection with the imperial cult. It's very clearly a very mm -hmm. obviously Roman thing to do. Um, but if you, if when you see these advertisements for the spectacles, they'll put the, the reason they state they're putting on. I'm paying for these shows, and the reason they state they're putting it on is in commemoration of the emperor and the senate and the people of Rome and the Roman army and the local community and the local people. So they're kind of in the list of belonging. This is why I'm putting on this show, this obviously mm -hmm. Roman show. This is in the Greek world um, where they – so in the list someplace, might be at the bottom of the list, but – you belong, right? You're part of mm. the empire because you buy into this clearly Roman and mm -hmm. Romanizing spectacle um, that's being uh, that's being celebrated at great expense uh, for your entertainment. Huh. Well, it's fascinating, and like you said, so much more than just bloodshed. You know, this, this is a, a ritual, a spectacle, mm -hmm. a celebration, but not just you know two guys hacking away at each other, or yeah. not, not just that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. It is that for sure, but. <laughs> yeah. but um, well, anyway, Professor Carter, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. Yeah, and to everyone great. listening, thanks for tuning in and uh, much more soon. Excellent.